0: A public service announcement was released last week from the New York City Office of Emergency Management. It purports to give guidelines on what to do in case of a nuclear bombing of the city. While many of us who understand the true nature of nuclear weapons might offer that the only appropriate response in that case is to kiss one's rear-facing body parts goodbye, This PSA tries to make it sound like a nuclear bomb would be a manageable event if we just do an updated version of the 1950s duck and cover exercises. Oh, really? That's why it's important to get the input of a genuine expert on this PSA and what it is getting so
1: terribly wrong. And then she tells you... Within seconds, millions of New Yorkers would die. This is an example of where the living would envy the dead. And so to say get inside of a building quick stand in the middle of that building and stay tuned and don't go outside until the authority tells you it's safe to just beggars belief, because there is nothing factual in any of those assumptions, and you know we have actual examples of nuclear weapons being used on our city. So it's not like the Office of Emergency Management didn't have any data at their fingertips if they'd just done a quick Google search. Well, when Dr. Kathleen Sullivan
0: of the New York Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons tells you what you really face should a nuclear bomb be detonated over New York City, or any city, you begin to understand the magnitude of that awful, dangerous seat that we all share We take a good hard look at that tone-deaf public service announcement released by the New York City Office of Emergency Management. It was on how to survive a nuclear accident. So let's take this opportunity to find out what's wrong with it. We talk with two guests, Dr. Kathleen Sullivan and Seth Sheldon of the New York Coalition Against Nukes, or NICAN. They give us not only the response to the PSA, but background information on the New York campaign for nuclear disarmament, the issues that inspired this confusing PSA, and the importance of finding out who is responsible for it, how much New York City taxpayers' money was spent on it, and how to get rid of it. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, Linda Pence-Gunter with the nuclear hot seat, Hot Story, and more honest nuclear information than was in that New York City PSA. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 19, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in the U.S., in California where a bipartisan but misguided chorus of politicians, scholars, and energy so-called experts now supports extending the lifespan of California's last nuclear facility, Diablo Canyon. The 37-year-old two-reactor plant is scheduled to be fully decommissioned in 2024 and 2025. But a concentrated push by nuclear industry money, supported by, among others, the former anti-nuclear, Governor Gavin Newsom, is pushing hard to extend the operating life of both reactors. The problem is, and always has been, Diablo Canyon itself. The aging plant faces serious seismic risks because it was built on fault lines that were not discovered until decades later. Worse... It is operated by an investor-owned utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, with such entrenched disregard for safety that a federal judge earlier this year described it as, quote, a continuing menace to California. Despite the fact that Governor Newsom led the push to decommission the plant when he was lieutenant governor, he has opened the door for the power plant to stay online. His administration recently persuaded the U.S. Department of Energy to change the rules for President Joe Biden's $6 billion program for rescuing nuclear power plants so PG&E could apply. We'll link to an article by esteemed author and activist Harvey Wasserman that includes the quote, Nuclear Regulatory Commission site inspector Dr. Michael Peck warned that Diablo could not withstand a credible seismic shock and should be shut. Tech worked five years inside the plant, but the NRC trashed his warnings and forced him out. Bad news for New Mexico, where the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has pronounced that there are no environmental reasons that would prevent a private sector high-level nuclear waste site from being set up in that state. The facility is being sold as a temporary nuclear fuel waste site that would take spent fuel rods from across the United States but with no permanent waste site having been designated for the country. The sense that this is temporary is openly perceived to be a false concept, that the waste not only risks transport across the country on public roads, but it also risks being abandoned there. For more on issues related to this, here is Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot
2: Story. Unfortunately, in the United States, nuclear power is not a partisan issue. It's safe to say that most politicians are pro-nuclear. At best, some Democrats are agnostic on the subject and a handful oppose it. And yet I'm sure that some of the more progressive Democrats, such as Cory Booker and Sheldon Whitehouse, would never consider themselves racist or sexist or ageist but nuclear power is all three. It discriminates on the basis of race and gender, and it disproportionately harms the most defenceless, including elders. Despite this, Booker, White House, and others support nuclear power with a fervor that borders on evangelism. It's time for them to rethink this. Let's start with racism. The fuel for nuclear power plants comes from uranium, which must be mined. A staggering 70% of uranium is mined from lands of indigenous peoples who also make up a large share of the workforce, whether in the United States, Canada, India, Australia, and parts of Africa. As such, they have taken the brunt of the negative health impacts as well as the environmental degradation created during the mining and milling process itself and then left behind as waste when the mines and mills cease to operate as most in the US now have. At the other end of the nuclear power chain comes the lethal radioactive waste stream. And again, indigenous peoples and poor communities of color are routinely the target to house this waste. The first and only high level radioactive waste repository identified for the US was to have been at Yucca Mountain, Nevada against the strong wishes of the Western Shoshone Nation of Indians on whose land the now canceled site is located. The Western Shoshone had already suffered the worst of the atomic testing program with the Nevada atomic test site also on their land, making them as Western Shoshone principal man Ian Zabati describes it, the most bombed nation on earth. An attempt to site a low level radioactive waste dump in the largely Hispanic community of Sierra Blanca, Texas was defeated as was an allegedly temporary high-level radioactive waste site targeted for the Skull valley Goshute Indian Reservation in Utah. Currently efforts are underway to secure what are euphemistically known as consolidated interim storage sites in two communities in New Mexico and Texas, again with large Hispanic populations and considerable opposition. Nuclear power is sexist because exposure to the ionizing radiation released at every stage of the nuclear fuel chain harms women more easily than men. Women and girls are more radiosensitive than men, but they are not protected for. Instead, the standard guidelines on which allowable radiation exposure levels are based, and allowable does not mean safe, Consider a healthy white male in his mid twenties to thirties and typically weighing around 154 pounds. He is known as reference man. Similarly, the elderly are more vulnerable to the harmful effects of radiation exposure than adults in the prime of life. They too are overlooked in favor of protecting a robust white man elders exposed to radiation are mainly to be found in the uranium mining and milling communities or where waste dumps are located and are therefore more likely to be low income with poorer access to health care and fewer finances to pay for it we must urgently address the climate crisis and rapidly lower and ideally eliminate carbon emissions but turning to nuclear power is not a humane choice a truly progressive energy policy looks forward not back Nuclear power is an energy of the past, born of a public relations exercise to create something positive out of splitting the atom. It was a mistake then, and it is a mistake now. If we are to address our climate crisis in time, and to do so with justice and equality, then we must consider the most vulnerable and discriminated among us, not what is best for that healthy white reference man. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's Hot Story.
0: In New Hampshire, beachgoers got more than they bargained for when an alert was blasted over a loudspeaker at several New Hampshire seacoast beaches to evacuate due to an incident at the Seabrook nuclear power plant. Beachgoers heard the alert in towns including Seabrook, Hampton, and Rye and quickly evacuated before learning that it was a false alarm. Hampton Fire Rescue called the advert inadvertent when they posted on Twitter, and a spokesperson for Next Era Energy Resources, representatives of the plant involved, said that the sirens activation was sent in error during testing of the system and, quote, quote, we apologize for the inconvenience we may have caused. No word from local hospitals as to possible spike in heart attacks, panic attacks, or seizures. In New Orleans, the nuclear power plant that supplies about a third of Entergy New Orleans power is offline again. Grand Gulf was offline in March and April for planned closures because of scheduled refueling. But the plant is now down due to a defective valve. Because Entergy will have to replace the power through the MISO market, which stands for Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, I don't know who puts together these acronyms, but this MISO energy is going to cause a tremendous spike in the power bills for New Orleans. In Japan, Tokyo District Court has ordered four former directors of Tokyo Electric Power Company to pay about $97 U.S. billion in damages to the utility. The shareholders claimed that the company incurred massive losses from the 2011 accident at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant and demanded 22 trillion yen, or more than 160 billion dollars, from five individuals who held top managerial posts. The trial focused on the reliability of a long-term assessment of possible seismic activities issued by a government panel in 2002, nine years before the accident. The former managers claimed the assessment had low credibility, so they could not foresee damage from a massive tsunami. But the judge found the long-term assessment of possible seismic activities scientifically reliable. He said the assessment made it obligatory for the company's managers to take measures against a tsunami. He went on to say that these managers were aware of the risks of a serious accident, but failed to call for quick implementation of minimum measures and added that the accident could have been avoided if steps had been taken to prevent flooding. Now let's see if they actually pay. In Ukraine, Energo Adam, Ukraine's atomic energy agency, accused Russia of using the six-reactor Zaporizhzhia nuclear site, the largest nuclear power plant facility in Europe, to store weapons and shell the surrounding areas of Nikopol and Dnipro that were hit on Saturday, July 16. Up to 500 Russian soldiers still control the site, and Zaporizhia continues to be extremely tense, with stories coming out of kidnapping and holding workers for ransom and even torture. Also in Ukraine, near the ruins of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, an international team of radiation experts led by Greenpeace Germany is examining abandoned Russian positions for radioactive contamination. For the first time since the beginning of the Russian invasion, independent measurements will be taken and the April 28th statement of the International Atomic Energy Agency or IAEA will be assessed. According to the IAEA, while there was increased radiation, The levels did not pose a great danger to the environment or people. IAEA Deputy Director Mikhail Chudikov is a longtime employee of the Russian nuclear company Rosatom. Sean Burney, a nuclear expert from Greenpeace, Germany, is on-site in Chernobyl, and he said, The IAEA's information so far is insufficient. We want to know what really happened on the ground. During the Russian occupation of the Chernobyl region, Greenpeace experts warned that this could lead to increased radioactive contamination. But the IAEA gave an all-clear at the end of April. Note that the IAEA is a nuclear agency that has a mandate to promote nuclear power. France's nuclear industry continues to take the hits. Electricity de France, or EDF, the is expected to continue and increase their nuclear power output cuts into next week as a heat wave sweeping across Europe pushes up river temperatures. Under French rules, EDF must reduce or halt nuclear output when river temperatures reach certain thresholds. This is meant to ensure that the water used to cool the plants won't harm the environment when put back into the waterways. The French utility said that two power stations on the Rhone River will produce less electricity in the coming days, adding to cutbacks at another plant caused by rising temperatures on the Garonne River. The embattled utility has estimated that the energy output this year from nuclear reactors will be the lowest in more than three decades, as multiple plants are shut for maintenance and checks. Right now, France's nuclear reactors are operating at only 46% of capacity. In a story that deserves to be linked, Germany produced record solar electricity last Sunday, July 17, and is set to exceed that again as the heat wave grips Europe. In Australia, the highly influential Financial Review has touted a report released by Ciro, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, that has determined that nuclear energy is too expensive to be considered an option to help Australia reduce its carbon emissions in the next decade. It states that the economics of large or small modular reactors do not stack up compared to renewable energy such as wind or solar. The allied GenCost report on the generation cost of electricity found that a small reactor, which is a theoretical reactor because they don't exist yet, typically would cost as much as $16,000 per kilowatt-hour, and by contrast, wind and solar come in at under 2000 per kilowatt-hour, one-eighth of the cost. This is a no-brainer. SIDSI, a network of primarily European-based Catholic social and environmental justice organizations, was among the groups criticizing the vote to oppose EU's vote to designate gas and nuclear energy as green, Chiara Martinelli of Climate Action Network Europe said classifying fossil gas and nuclear power as green is a climate disaster fueling human rights violations. Meanwhile, the Russian Orthodox Church is blessing nuclear weapons with clergymen in red and gold vestments standing beside massive intercontinental ballistic missiles and flinging holy water at the delivery system for a nuclear bomb. Not to exorcise it, but to bless it. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, no, nuclear war is not survivable. No matter what the nuclear industry and its toadies in politics and government bureaucracy try to convince us that it is. And unfortunately, nuclear is not going to go away all by itself. Not the weapons, reactors, radioactive waste, contamination that already exists, and the risks. So it is important that we understand what's there what we're up against, and what steps we can genuinely take to fight against industry expansion and the problems it has already created. Whether it's wrong-headed PSA or other nuclear industry propaganda, those who oppose nuclear face an organized, relentless, brutally well-funded publicity campaign that makes it hard to get saner voices heard. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories and issues with context and continuity. And we offer not only insights, but tools to fight back against this forever contamination of our precious planet. But we need your help in order to keep doing this important work. In honor of our 11th anniversary, which was just a few weeks ago, how about sending in a donation of $11 or $5, same as a cup of coffee here in the US or more, or you can make it a recurring donation. Be it once or every month, you'll be helping keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running to provide you with cutting-edge information on what the nukesters are doing and steps we can take to effectively oppose them and protect ourselves. So run, don't walk. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and help us with a donation of any size, be it one time or recurring. Donate what you can now, And know that, however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. As you've heard elsewhere on this episode, the New York City Emergency Management Office released a bombshell last week, a video PSA on how to survive a nuclear attack, and it has generated a firestorm of its own. I will link to that PSA on the website under this episode, Nuclear Hot Seat number 578, so you can view it for yourself. But the gist of it is a repackaging of the 1950s discounted duck and cover. In brief, a very trendy millennial woman is green-screened in front of New York City brownstones with skyscrapers in the background. It's obviously Manhattan. She tells us, the big one has happened, and then cautions us, Don't ask why or how. Then she offers her first step of advice. We need to get inside fast. Right, like the nanosecond between detonation and blast at a temperature hotter than that of the sun will give us time and awareness to get inside. And that's presuming that there's such a thing left as inside when all the structures have been evaporated. Don't believe me that that's what'll happen? Look at pictures of Hiroshima after the blast. We have some up on the website for your convenience. Step two. This spokeswoman tells you to stay inside. Well, if there's still a you and you manage to get inside, the only way you'll stay inside is probably by being buried under any rubble that hasn't been vaporized. If you were caught outside in the blast, and you still exist, she tells you to take a shower with soap or shampoo. There's still plumbing? Water? Again, look at the Hiroshima pictures. This is absolutely ludicrous. Then, step three. She tells you to stay tuned. Follow the media. Well, besides the physical destruction of communications infrastructure by the blast, fireball, and radiation that follows, that's assuming the electromagnetic pulse generated by the bomb would allow any signals to exist at all. And then she ends it with the ultimate New York City reassurance, like fist to the shoulder. You got this. Now, this is not a hit on the actress. She was hired, she had paying work, and was given a prepared script. Somebody else did it. But that script! They're talking about survival tactics after dropping a bomb. That, if it came from Russia and was just one of their typical 475 kiloton bombs would be more than 30 times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And there's lots more to be considered here. So to learn some of the background on this piece and further information on what's wrong with it, I spoke with two guests. Dr. Kathleen Sullivan is a disarmament educator and nuclear abolitionist, an author and producer of documentaries. She's been engaged with nuclear issues for the last 30 years. Seth Sheldon is the United Nations Liaison for the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. This is the group that won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. Together, they helped to found NICANN, the New York Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. We spoke on Monday, July 18, 2022, and because there were some audio difficulties on my end, what you will hear is them basically interviewing each other. And they do a terrific job of it.
1: It would be a pleasure to be with my colleague, Seth Sheldon. We both work together with the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And as New York City members of ICANN, we formed a group called NICANN, the New York Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And Seth, do you want to say a few words about the campaign that we began in 2018 to have New York City pension funds divested from nuclear
3: weapon producers? Sure. We got together after the successful adoption of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, something that a lot of us in New York were working on at the United Nations throughout 2017 and before 2017, but 2017 is when it was negotiated. And once we got through that major milestone, we got together and said, you know, we should be looking locally also at what we're doing little bit more. And that's something you've been working on for a lot of your career, Kathleen. But for a lot of us, it crystallized around the question of, gee, how much money is New York City investing in the nuclear weapons industry? And you know, we did some work, uh, thanks to our colleague, in particular, colleague, Dr. Matthew Bolton of Pace University, who uncovered a lot of information about the massive investments that New York City makes in manufacturing and maintaining nuclear weapons. We took that to the Comptroller's Office to work to begin a campaign to divest New York from new nuclear weapons. But as we dug further into that project, we realized there were so many things we could do in New York to reverse the legacy of New York City being the place where nuclear weapons began. After all, it was called the Manhattan Project for a reason. And we focused on that and galvanized a lot of local support from citizens and from the city council to adopt a resolution that was introduced by former council member Daniel Drum of Queens that does a number of really exciting and important things, including calling on the controller to divest the, we think, approximately $475 million of New York City public pension money from the nuclear weapons industry that it currently has invested in nuclear weapons. Two, creating a committee that will take forward work to recommend policy and forward educational initiatives, and it would be a city committee that would be co-run by the city council and the mayor's office, but would be staffed by citizen experts. Third, but not least, joining New York City to the ICANN Cities Appeal and calling on the United States government to join, sign and ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons We got that through in December of last year and when it was uh, passed by the city council. And that's the summary, my summary anyway, of the work that we've been doing together.
1: And we in NICAN, the New York Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, feel that it's very important and incumbent upon New Yorkers to recognize the responsibility we have for the legacy of being essential to the project that created the world's first nuclear weapons. Of course, it's called the Manhattan Project. And we have uncovered a lot of reasons why. For example, I'm speaking to you from Chelsea in West Manhattan, where on 20th Street, the Williams and Baker warehouses stored some hundreds of tons of uranium for the Manhattan Project, which alarmingly was not remediated until the late 80s, early 90s. And we have a friend who was working for the, what would you call it, Seth? The Teamsters Union.
3: Yeah, and, yeah, Teamsters. He's a yeah, he worked at the Baker and Williams warehouse there.
1: And they were given a bonus to get these barrels out as quickly as possible. And Johnny reports that, you know, these barrels were physically hot to be around and had actually kind of sunk into the concrete. They weren't told that this was radioactive that these were radioactive materials stored there for the Manhattan Project. So, you know, one wonders if those workers will contract cancers from materials that were stored in New York City for the production of nuclear weapons. Most all of the uranium used in the Manhattan Project was stored at some point in the five boroughs of New York City. We still have a problem in Ridgewood, Queens, where radioactive thorium was stored and that is yet to be cleaned up and is a Superfund site under the EPA. So the importance of the legislation was also to advise City Council on where these legacy sites still remain and the harm that they present in the present day to New Yorkers, often in marginalized communities. And so we wanted to draw attention to the legacy for New York City and also the importance of education. One of the things that our legislation aims to do is to create a curriculum for um, students in the New York City school system, the largest school system in the country, to learn the truth about what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and to understand the unique role that uh, New York City played, which is why when the Office of Emergency Management issued this absolutely inane and deeply irresponsible PSA about what to do in the event of a nuclear attack, it was kind of mind blowing for us, right, Seth?
3: Yeah, it's so extraordinary that at a time like this, that such a misstep would happen from our city especially when we've got so much progress and momentum from the work that we've been doing. I think it was really surprising that they chose to make this and that this is how they chose to make it.
1: Especially we were alarmed by the casual nature with which the Office of Emergency Management approaches a nuclear attack on New York City. We know that New York City is targeted by other nuclear armed nations. But the idea that you could get inside, stay put and stay tuned is so tone deaf with even the most rudimentary understanding of what a thermonuclear weapon actually is. So it's a deep embarrassment to the reputation of our city. NICAN is calling on city council to host an oversight hearing to understand who is responsible for this PSA, how much it costs taxpayers to create this, and most importantly for them to delete this PSA. It's seen by almost a million people at this point internationally. And we've been called by colleagues from all over the world saying, what is wrong with New York City?
3: I didn't know that that was watch rate at this point. I didn't know that that many people had watched it, but I'm not surprised. I would actually encourage listeners, if you haven't checked it out, to watch this PSA that Dr. Sullivan was uh, just talking about, because I think it's something that you have to see for yourself, at least before they delete it, which I also hope that they will at some point. It is hard to do justice in a descriptive way to the very strange production values and script that they chose to implement in making this. To me, it looks like that the city is trying to treat this as if they're advising citizens of any ordinary disturbance in a New Yorker's routine life. And we could talk about why that's so problematic. But in the first place, it would jump out to anyone who watches it as, at the very least, bizarre that you would see this PSA about a nuclear attack as if you were watching commentary about the two or three trains being rerouted on the 456 line or something. It's done with such banal ordinariness that I think that is kind of central to, for my mind, one of the key problems with this program.
1: One of our critiques is that if Mayor Adams had implemented Intro Bill 1621, there would be an advisory committee to help New York City government understand nuclear disarmament and the threat of nuclear weapons and what we can do to mitigate it. Of course, our position is the only prevention is nuclear abolition, and New York City as the central player in the Manhattan Project has a huge responsibility. And also, sadly, that this PSA should correspond almost to the month that we recognize 40 years since the June 12, 1982, March and rally for nuclear disarmament that happened in Central Park, where over a million people gathered to say no to the nuclear arms race. And that really had a real effect um, internationally, politically. So to be that incredibly tone deaf is, I mean, we were kind of speechless about the whole thing. But had Mayor Adams implemented our legislation, which has been passed, then that advisory group would have existed and we could have been in dialogue about true preventative methods for mitigating nuclear risk, which is, as we say, nuclear abolition. But please also yeah. look at the PSAs that NICAN has produced, where we do take apart the, as Seth said, banality of this PSA, this message from New York City's Office of Emergency Management. You know, it kind of makes us really wonder. How these people, if they don't even have the basic facts about thermonuclear weapons, how are we to trust them when it comes to hurricanes and floods, which are things that we can expect, you know, even this year? How are we to trust these people?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I have to say, too, that I'm born and raised in New York. And on a certain level, when I see something like this, if I didn't have the background and experience in the subject matter, it wouldn't occur to me as quite as pointedly as it does why it's so horrible and so problematic. As a New Yorker, on one level, of course, like many other New Yorkers, I appreciate the idea that, you know, there's a problem, we should try and fix it. We should try to respond to it. And that's actually at the core of what's so bad about this, because it doesn't, help anyone understand how impossible that's going to be. And I think that the closing line of it, the the sort of tagline, is it, we got this or you got this? I mean, but either way, it's it's like, you know, kind of saying, it's New York, we got this. Oh my God, you know, we don't. I think when I watch it, I, and once I pick my jaw from the floor, as it were, you know, I, I had this process where I sort of was like, okay, I mean, I understand that this wasn't made by people who were trying to do something bad. So why did they do it? And to me, there's like two levels of problems that come out of this that crystallize in my head. And they're either in the category of that this is really bad because the advice is so bad and that it actually won't help people the way they are intended to work. And then there's the other line, which is that this is really so bad because much like the propaganda of the 1950s through the 1970s in particular, the duck and cover type programs that a lot of listeners will be familiar with. This is at the core of what makes nuclear weapons continue to be a problem for the world, for the U.S. and for New Yorkers. It is that it is making, as we keep saying, banality. I mean, it is making nuclear weapons be something that we should all be used to. And just accept and its effect even if its intent was not this and i'd like to believe that its intent was not this but its effect is to just normalize the public sentiment relating to risks and consequences of nuclear war that is horrifying in ways that probably the creators again i'd like to believe don't really realize and as you say kathleen that's what 1621 the legislation that we worked so hard to get adopted when we implement it, that's really what this is. a That's about is trying to help people understand what we actually can do about nuclear weapons. Because we're not saying, I mean, I'm not saying that the message needs to be. There's nothing you can do. That's not because I think I see on on you know the the social media responses is sort of like people saying, "Well, I want to know what to do in the case of a nuclear attack." I appreciate that they're telling me. You know, and again, there's two reasons why the PSA does such a bad job at that. Because it's giving advice that actually is not helpful, and second that it's basically helping nuclear weapons continue to exist and continue to threaten all of us by making this so ordinary.
1: I think that is hitting the nail right on the head there, Seth, because unfortunately since the invasion of Ukraine, you know, which is a nuclear-armed nation invading a non-nuclear nation and th- threatening to use nuclear weapons. People like to focus that their ire on Russia as the big bad nuclear-armed state at the moment. But, you know, when Russia made those threats, France was very quick to counter-threat, saying, we have nuclear weapons and we will use them too. Every nuclear-armed country is the problem. And with this most recent egregious illegal invasion, we have the normalization of nuclear weapon use, I think like we haven't seen since something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, talking about what happens when a nuclear bomb explodes, you know, what if a nuclear weapon were used as if it's an isolated experience, as if it wouldn't lead to further devolution into you know, a radioactive hellscape. I think just one city having a nuclear bomb explode over it, such as New York in this scenario. We learned, leaned very heavily on Lynn Eden of Stanford University, whose book, World on Fire, really focuses on some of the effects of nuclear weapons that we we don't often talk about, which are the firestorms that would ensue should a nuclear weapon be used over an urban area or any area. But given the ferocity of that, this would not be isolated to any one part of New York City. This would be a tri-state area disaster. And as we say in our PSA, again leaning heavily on the research of Lynn Eden writing in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist in an article in 2015 called, What if an 800 kiloton bomb exploded over Midtown Manhattan? Within seconds, millions of New Yorkers would die. This is an example of where the living would envy the dead. And so to say, Get inside of a building quick, stand in the middle of that building and stay tuned and don't go outside until the authority tells you it's safe to. Just beggars belief because there is nothing factual in any of those assumptions. And, you know, we have actual examples of nuclear weapons being used on our city. So it's not like the Office of Emergency Management didn't have any data at their fingertips if they'd just done a quick Google search. And that's why I think it's so embarrassing as New Yorkers to have something like this remain on the internet, Mm -hmm. which say that we have no idea what we're talking about. The other issue is that there are plenty of people here in New York City who have dedicated their lives to nuclear weapons abolition, and plenty of people over generations in our fine city who have done amazing work on nuclear disarmament. I'm thinking about Dorothy Day, I'm thinking about Bayard Rustin, I'm thinking about some of the great people With the giants upon whose shoulders we stand so you know it's it's really something that we need to not only delete from the office of emergency management's website but there needs to be an investigation and
3: i think that the people who are responsible for this should resign at the least i think that it wouldn't be enough to just take it down i think it must be taken down but i i think now this misinformation is out there there needs to be uh, even more work to correct it and I think we, we've touched on it now and and, and danced around it, but I'm, as you were saying that, I was now remembering how bad it is. The way it's produced, poor actor who was given a script to read and was put in this like very nice looking, enormous looking uh, apartment in Midtown as if this is what New York would look like after a nuclear attack. I mean, just from the beginning, they're like, what? Already this is wrong. They didn't have to say any words. And it was wrong from the start. But, uh, you know, the get inside, stay inside, take a shower, and stay tuned. Uh, Of course, I'm not sure what kind of version of nuclear attack that they are talking about here that would be helpful to elaborate on, because obviously there is some spectrum of possibility here in terms of how catastrophic this catastrophe would be, but in general, a lot of the average-sized nuclear detonations that we'd be thinking about—you know—we're talking about houses and buildings up to 175 kilometers away from the epicenter just disappearing. So, what are we talking about here? People upstate? Where is this detonation? The destination is the detonation in the city? I mean, let's approach this realistically. There will be no showers you wouldn't want to take one probably because we're talking about a lot of contaminated water i mean it's very difficult to know i think at that stage what to do and people do try to analyze this let's analyze it with a little bit more thoughtfulness because there's some hard, very hard decisions to make for people who are lucky or unlucky enough to survive and you know then stay tuned it's like has anyone thought about the research on the electromagnetic pulse effects of a nuclear detonation and how communications infrastructure will be just eliminated. So I think that from beginning, every moment of this is farcical, but it would be maybe more entertaining in its farcicalness if it wasn't so horribly dangerous. So I think a correction should be part of the way to respond. But as you said, NICAN has put out some material already that's that's speaking to making these kind of corrections and and better informing the public. But maybe we talk a little bit about what else we can do. Kathleen, what do you think in terms of people who are listening, whether they're in New York or not, uh, to help us deal with this response to this travesty?
1: Well, as we've been saying, the only prevention is abolition. And so what we all can do, people who live in the world can do is to encourage our local and federal governments to work to abolish nuclear weapons. Seth and I both work with ICANN. We have the ICANN Cities Appeal, which through our legislation, New York City is a part of. I think the most populous city of the ICANN Cities Appeal is New York.
3: That's correct. Yeah. Yes.
1: So the most very popular, proud of that. Yes, we are. I do believe L.A. has signed the ICANN cities appeal. There are many cities in the United States that have. We're also working for what's called the Parliamentary Pledge. Those are the people in the federal level of governments to pledge to work to have the government sign and ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That's what we worked so hard over so many years when really ICANN and our partners work to shift the narrative from the military industrial complex to the humanitarian consequences. So instead of looking at bombs and military and, you know, the power over, we looked at What happens to people what happens to the environment when nuclear weapons are used and it really shifted the narrative and the focus and that's part of what brought our treaty, which was adopted at the UN in 2017 and for which the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons won the Nobel Peace Prize that year, and that was when our great champion, Setsuko Thurlow, who's a Hiroshima survivor said, you know, this is the beginning of the end of nuclear weapons because we see that nuclear weapons aren't something that's abstract, that is up to a very few, nine count them, nine nations that have nuclear weapons that threaten all life on earth. When we change the narrative, when we personalize the nuclear threat, when we see, that the nuclear threat is something that actually threatens individual people who I love, who we love, you know, make it personal. I think that is something that's so important for everybody in the world. This isn't something to be left up to the experts or to government officials. Anyone who is a mentally well person who saw a child run into traffic wouldn't stop, but go and grab that child and take that child from danger. We have to take ourselves, our loved ones, future generations away from the danger that we live with every moment of every day. Nuclear weapons threaten everyone and everything that we love. When we personalize the threat, when we see how caught up our economy is, our politics are, it becomes much, I want to say easier, for people to understand that this is something, yes, this is something that I want to get involved with. This is something that I have a say in. Part of our campaign in New York, as Seth mentioned, is divestment. Don't Bank on the Bomb is a project of POCS and ICANN, and it's done a brilliant job showing how different financial institutions are making money, investing in the modernization and maintenance of nuclear weapons. people are become aware of this and protest this, there are many banks and pension funds across the world that are saying, we don't want to be investing in the possibility of ushering in the end of all life. So I think education is central, personalization is central, just really focusing in on what and who we love and how we want to protect our beautiful planet for future generations. I don't think this is a partisan issue. Any person who is mentally well will say that nuclear weapons are not something that we can control. They're certainly not something that has ended war in the last 77 years. And they're certainly not something that we can pretend that we can just casually live with, like this PSA suggests the casual assessment of a nuclear attack the casual idea that human beings and nuclear weapons can coexist forever without them eventually being used and without catastrophic effects that none of us really have any idea even how to imagine the radioactive Mm -hmm. violence that would ensue
3: when someone makes a mistake like this i think for so many reasons it's the helpful silver lining of it is that it helps people understand that this is not the path that we should be taking. And I think we could look back to other disasters that helped spread awareness about this, this looming disaster, you know, much like climate change that, except on a much more instant scale, threatens to destroy us all. And that you know, whether it's the, the Cuban Missile Crisis or the false alert in Hawaii, I mean, these are the moments that we should use to wake up and do something more than just accept that these things are here to stay because they really do not have to be. And when you tune into the work of the abolitionists who are advancing the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, you see that there's actually a much better path that's making a lot of progress. And it's, it's an important moment because right now we are starting the conference for the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons in new york and it's the 10th review conference of of this treaty that represents the status quo or worse we fear for what the general international structure is on nuclear weapons and it's not making progress to protect us from the threat of nuclear weapons it really isn't i mean there's just it's very hard for anyone at this point, to see how this treaty by itself would lead us towards abolition of nuclear weapons and eliminating nuclear threat. On the other hand, we have just come from the first meeting of the state's parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So all the states that have joined it so far showed up to do something that and and begin the process towards something that could and should, if we can all get behind it, Represent the end of nuclear weapons, and people in the U.S. and in New York clearly need to know more about that and uh, realize that you know as a city we've already we've already declared that that's the path we want to take and. There's hundreds of cities around the world that have joined this ICANN Cities Appeal. Yes, from in the U.S., from from New York to L.A., also D.C., but, you know, in all, like, I can't remember how many capital cities, but tons of capital cities around the world in nuclear armed states and nuclear client states or umbrella states, as some people say, you know, have joined us. And that's the path that we've been working on to ensure that we actually preserve a future for humanity. And I think all of the compelling reasons why that's the way we need to go are the benefit of a, of a PSA like this, for, uh, for me anyway, is that people now are tuned into this issue that maybe weren't. I mean, my sister called me or wrote me rather right after this came out, who's a New Yorker also and has really never engaged in the substance of the work that I'm doing on nuclear weapons that I can remember. I mean, and yet this reached her. And she wrote something to the effect of, is this for real? Is this something that we're actually concerned about now? Is it a joke? Actually, and she also said, why didn't they consult you about it? You know. And so I think that to me, that represents that. Unfortunately, it's the wrong message that got to them, but it represents an opportunity to now help these people understand why that was wrong and the way that we can actually take forward a real solution.
1: Why didn't they consult us? If Mayor Adams had implemented our legislation, we would have an advisory committee in the mayor's office to consult exactly on these issues. We will be working with city council to demand a government
3: oversight hearing. And I believe that even though I think that the mayor's office made a mistake with this, I still believe that they'll be working with us and that this will you know, we will move forward in a positive direction now that this has happened, but just taking forward our work in general. And I'm looking forward to that.
1: Libby, thank you so much for asking us to join you today. And we'll keep you posted on our progress.
3: Yes, thank you very much. We really appreciate it.
1: And thank you for your excellent work educating the public on nuclear issues. It's a pleasure to be with you. Dr. Kathleen Sullivan and Seth Sheldon
0: of the New York Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. On the website, nuclearhotseek.com, under this episode, number 578, we have a whole bunch of extra goodies. We've got a link to the video PSA, a nuke map screenshot of what a 475-kiloton nuclear bomb, that's the size of the most common nuke in the Russian arsenal, what that would do if it was dropped on Manhattan, and pictures of Hiroshima, both before and after the explosion of the atomic bomb. Note that the nuke that was dropped on Hiroshima was 32 times less powerful than what New York would be facing from a Russian bomb. And we will, of course, link with New York Coalition Against Nukes, and also their press releases and PSAs. Another thought. While it's easy to lambast the PSA and those who made it as brain-dead and clueless, I think the truth might be darker than that. I believe that this may have been crafted as an intentional, highly focused, pro-nuclear hit piece on those who are trying to stop them from existing. It reassures those who know nothing about nuclear weapons into thinking that a bomb blast would be survivable. It steals the attention and energy of activists away from doing the work of getting nuclear weapons banned and into responses to this ridiculousness. It is disinformation, well-produced, slick, and completely wrong. So was it an accident, a blind spot, or a well-focused grouped hit piece courtesy the nuclear industry think tanks and their wonks? If we find out anything more for sure... We'll let you know. Oh, yes, there is one more thing.
2: Nuclear hot seat.
0: Nuclear hot
2: seat. Nuclear hot seat. None that sound week.
0: New York City Mayor Eric Adams has praised the PSA because, and here I quote, Better safe than sorry. No, better safe means getting rid of all nukes. Sorry is what we face if we don't. And that's why, Mayor Eric Adams of New York City, you are this week's Nuclear Hot
2: Seat. None that's out of the week.
0: This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 19, 2022. Our thanks to Linda Pence Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Hey, there's an easy way for you to never miss another episode of Nuclear Hot Seat it's easy. You can get it delivered via email every week. It will have the link to the podcast and a brief rundown of some of the information that is in the show. The way you get it, go to nuclearhotseat.com, look for the yellow box, and fill in your first name and your email address. That's it. We won't bug you. We won't sell it. All you get is the way to connect with the show every week. Or, if you prefer, go to any of your favorite outlets for listening to podcasts, look up Nuclear Hot Seat, click on it, you've got our show every week, and we welcome you to it. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, we want to know what it is, so send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Please, don't use social media, just send me an email, it's the most reliable way to get the information to me. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, help us out, go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the modest-sized red button. Anything you can do will help. And of course, we always appreciate your support, and we especially appreciate the fact that you care enough to listen. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. That's the name of the program, the website, the names of any guests whose comment you use, and don't forget to mention me, huh? This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, the show that's launching into its 12th year of weekly episodes, reminding you That in New York or anywhere, when it comes to a nuclear attack, you don't got this. There you go. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake up call. So, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.
2: Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking?